Hello everyone, today we are continuing the Torch Slayer series. I spent quite a bit of time on this case because I wanted to answer just one simple question. Was the Torch Slayer a serial killer? The basic definition of a serial killer is someone who commits a series of murders, often with no apparent motive, and typically following a predictive behavior pattern. Because of how things were handled, You'll probably never have heard of the Torch Slayer. And if you have, you only knew of his just one victim. But today we continue to take a deep dive into this crazy story. Hello everyone and welcome to Forgotten True Crime, the podcast where we investigate true crime cases forgotten through time. We examine each crime independently of other people's opinions and we search out prime sources through police records, witness statements, news reports, and much, much more. No Wikipedia here, folks. Please subscribe to the podcast so you'll be the first to know when we have new episodes. You can also check out our webpage at truecrime.blog. That's where we post a lot of the stories that we feature on this show. And we also have a Facebook and YouTube page as well. You can find us under Forgotten true crime these stories depict violent crimes of all types and may be a trigger for some listeners listener discretion is advised in the last episode we ended on a low note miss margaret brown's murder was not solved the man wanted for questioning for that murder mr lewis clement was found to have nothing to do with the murder he was a swindler, not a killer. So we find ourselves now just one year later. The date is February 23rd, 1929. This is just one year and five days to the date of Miss Brown's murder. James Boyle was a delivery driver for the Ward Baking Company. His shift started early and he went to work and he picked up his delivery of fresh baked goods and then he started making his deliveries throughout the morning. At about 5.30 in that morning, James was in Cranford, New Jersey. The roads were slick with snow so James drove slowly to avoid any trouble. The road that he was driving down was considered pretty remote. There were few homes and businesses in the area, but it was also the most direct route to where he was going. Down the road, James could see something on fire. What was odd to James was that this fire, it was in the middle of the road. He didn't have a clue how it was burning like it was. The other thing that bothered James was there was just nobody in the area. There didn't appear to be any cars or people that might just explain what's happening. As James pulled up to the fire, he realized what it was at once. It was the body of a young woman lying in the middle of the road. She was on her stomach and the flames rose several feet. 
Without stopping, James drove to the Cranford police station to report what he had found. After confirming the report of the burning body, the officers contacted the Cranford, New Jersey chief of police, Mr. James Hennessy, and also Sergeant Lawrence Burnell. As a side note, confirming James Hennessy's full name took a while. He was actually named Chief or Chief Hennessy in almost every report I could find. But I was able to locate his name in the 1929 copy of List of Members of the International Association of Chief of Police. And so I went down this whole rabbit hole just looking for this one name. What's actually pretty funny about this is after I found his name in this just obscure book that luckily had been scanned and put online, I found his name in a news report just moments after I found this. So if I would have just continued looking at news reports, I would have found it pretty quickly. But <laughs> as things are, it's it's all right. Chief Hennessy and Sergeant Burnell were already about to head into the station for the day. And instead, they directed resources to start investigating this murder. When detectives arrived at the scene, they discovered a gruesome sight. A woman was face down in the cold, remote road. Her back was severely burned. It appeared that she was placed on the road face down and then simply lit on fire on the spot. Like the first murder, this woman did not show any signs of trying to protect herself from the flames. She must have been unconscious or already dead when set ablaze. When detectives turned over the woman's body, they discovered another gruesome clue. The woman's face had been beaten badly, and it appeared that she had a gunshot wound as well to the top of the head. The woman's clothes were less damaged on this side. It was like they were protected by the road and actually stopped the fire from spreading to her front. The thing that detectives found when they moved the body was a partially burnt match. It was probably from a failed attempt to light the body on fire. The other thing they found quite odd was that the woman had lots and lots of jewelry. On her hand were three rings, two white gold diamond engagement rings, and an imitation diamond ring as well. She also had an imitation pearl necklace and bracelet. The woman appeared to be about 45 years old with graying blonde hair and blue eyes. She was about 5 foot 5 inches tall and weighed about 155 pounds. Typically, when someone's killed for money, they also take things like the jewelry. This was a red flag for investigators and they believed that this was something for other than money. The woman's body was sent to be autopsied in hopes to find more clues on what was going on. Another delivery driver came forward as to have witnessed something. Henry Denver, who drives for the Hill Bread Company, 
had drove through this area about 30 minutes before John did, who was the other delivery driver. Henry stated that there was a car that was parked on the road. It was a blue coupe. A man was standing just outside the car and a woman was in the car. Henry told detectives that the man was wearing a short sleeve shirt and as he approached, he turned to Harry's vehicle and started waving him down. At first, Henry didn't think too much about this. Yes, it was in a secluded spot, but he felt that they were probably a couple who were trying to get some alone time in. But when the man started waving him down, Henry got out of there. He didn't stop and knew that it was even dangerous at this time of day to even consider it. Highwaymen were a common occurrence, and there was no telling what these two had in store for him. You have to remember that this was leading up to the Great Depression. Not everyone in the country was doing well, and things seemed to get harder and harder. Some of those who struggled turned to a life of crime, and highwaymen crimes were on the rise. This type of crime meant tricking or forcing someone to stop their vehicle. This typically happened in a remote area. They would then rob the passerby. Many times, these crimes ended in murder. One of the things that detectives decided to do was conduct a search in the area on and off the road. Officers were sent in all directions to see if there was anything that they could find. About a quarter of a mile down the road, officers found a man's hat and also a coat. It was about 10 feet from the road. Officers believed that they were tossed from a moving vehicle. That was due to the location that they were lying and the area of road they were on. Although they were not 100% if this had any kind of link between these items and the murder, the detectives believed there was a good chance there was some kind of link. The victim's body was taken to the county physician George M. Hore. The initial autopsy revealed that the woman's death was caused by a bullet that was first fired into the top of the skull, apparently when she was seated. The slug coursed down through her head and then pierced into her lung. It was lodged just behind a rib. The woman's face was then beaten in such a way to prevent identification. But one thing that the killer may not have known was that this woman had recent dental work done. A new bridge was in her mouth. And this suggested that there was a chance that they could make an identification through those means. There was no mistaking that the two murders of this unknown woman and that of Margaret Brown were very similar. They were crazy similar cases where the victims were both burned. They happened at the same time of year, just one year apart, and in the same state. In both cases, a blue car was seen in the area. In both cases, it seemed that this was done for some other reason than just money. 
in Margaret's case, the killer actually sent back the money that he had in his possession. In this case, the killer didn't even bother taking her jewelry. None of this is proof that the two cases were linked, but Chief Hennessy refused to publicly entertain the idea that these two cases were linked in any way. This was not a bad idea seeing how Margaret's case was handled. Chief Hennessy was quite blunt with the press early on in this investigation. He told the media that this murder would not be solved unless they got pretty lucky. Days went by without an identification. Officers were answering calls about missing women all day. Many of the calls were from New York. This was probably because Margaret's murder was so heavily covered in that state. Each person described a missing person. And they would compare it to a Jane Doe and then give that person the news that this was not their loved one. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. The days became weeks and then even months. There was little for detectives to do in this case but research what they had as clues. The first thing they had was the victim's shoes. They worked hard to find out who had made them. Eventually, they traced them to a shoemaker in Pennsylvania. But that was as far as that clue had taken them. The hat that they found on the side of the road was traced to have been shipped and sold in New York. Again, this yielded no other clues. Meanwhile, there were two women in Pennsylvania, Miss Staub and Miss Dodds, who were very worried about their dear friend. Their friend had been traveling and was writing to them often, keeping them up to date on the drama that was going on in her life. But the letters stopped coming, and they immediately became worried about her. It wasn't until one of the two friends read the description of the woman found burned in New Jersey. The thing that stood out most to them was the clothing and rings. They were exactly the same type of thing that their friend always wore. They also knew 
about their friend's recent dental work. So, on April 10th, 1929, Miss Staub and Miss Dodds phoned the police in Cranford, New Jersey. They explained their theory, and the officers checked Jane Doe and her belongings and found that they matched to what was being described to them. Detectives finally got a possible name for their Jane Doe. Miss Mildred Campbell. The two women also gave the detective the name of Miss Campbell's dentist. Officers arranged for transportation for the women to come to Cranford and identify the victim within a day or two. This would be a shocking sight. They kept the victim frozen to prevent her from decaying, and it was unsettling for anyone to see. Detectives also contacted the dentist. He was not hard to reach, and he told the officers that he could quickly identify his work. He didn't mind coming down the next day, and he also said he would see if he could recognize this woman. Some of this leaked to the newspapers, but didn't really see any press. This story had been rehashed over and over again at this point. There was just so little to go on. They didn't know if this was really going to yield any results or not. One thing that seemed quite different in this case from Margaret's case was that the newspapers didn't seem to have quite as many officers and officials leaking them information as before. The information that the press received from this case came from official press statements. This clamped the case down to a point where if the killer was keeping an eye on the news, this time they would not spook him in the hiding so quickly. The next day, Dr. H.C. Studervant, the dentist who came to identify the bridge work, arrived at the police station. They took him where they were keeping the victim. Within moments, he was not only able to identify the bridge work, but he positively identified the victim as Miss Mildred Campbell. Beyond that information, he had little to give the detectives. He didn't know Miss Campbell outside of being a long-term patient. Shortly thereafter, Miss Staub arrived at the police station. The first thing they did was have her formally identify the personal belongings of the victim. Each article of clothing and jewelry was identified as something her dear friend wore and owned. Then they brought her back and showed Miss Staub the victim. At once, she told the police that it was her dear friend, Miss Mildred Campbell. After the identification, detectives asked Miss Staub if she could tell them a little bit more about Mildred and what was going on with her. Miss Staub told the detectives that Mildred Campbell was her married name. She knew her better by Mildred Mowry. Mildred had not been so lucky in love. She was a nurse and lived her day-to-day -day life helping others but she was always lonely. 
So Mildred decided to do something about it. She was not the kind of person who would idly stand by and suffer. So since she was not having much luck in Greenville, Pennsylvania, she wrote to a matchmaking service based out of Detroit. This service would pair you with someone who they believed was similar to yourself. A 1920s version of eHarmony, if you will. Well, Mildred was paired with a doctor named Henry Colin Campbell. This was huge to detectives. You see their flat-out refusal to compare this case to Miss Margaret Brown's murder was a way to keep them on track in case the two were not connected. They wanted to establish this murder first and then see if they could tie it to the other. In both cases, the victims were seeing a doctor. Miss Staub told the detectives that her friend was able to meet Mr. Campbell, and they quickly fell in love. He was about 20 years her senior, but he promised an established life and a joint goal. Both Mr. Campbell and Mildred were passionate about being medical professionals. Mr. Campbell told Mildred that he planned on opening a sanitarium in New York where he planned on living. The two fell in love, and in August of 1928, they got married in Elkton, Maryland. Now, Mr. Campbell left their temporary home and told his new bride that he was heading to New York to get things ready, and he was going to have their dream home built and start their new business. The months went by, and there were many excuses to why Mildred could not come and see the progress that was being made. As each month went by, Mildred would grow more and more impatient. So by February of 1929, Mildred decided to go out by herself and find her husband. She wanted to see him willing or not. On February 1st, Mildred Campbell went on this adventure and never returned. Detectives zeroed in on Henry Colin Campbell as their primary suspect. Something that excited the detectives was that they were able to quickly find the registered residence of Henry Colin Campbell. He resided in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which was just five miles away. Join us next time for the exciting conclusion of the Torch Slayer. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. My name is Trevor Shelby, and I will see you all next time. See ya. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. 
Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.